The Bain Free Radio Hour. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirog. Today, we continue Sean Patrick Hazlett's discussion about UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. We're going to jump right back in with Patrick Childs, Joel Presby, Robert E. Hampson, and Les Johnson. If you didn't get a chance to check out part one, go to our website, Bain.com, and find it there or wherever you get your podcasts. There's been a lot of discussion about what these UAP might be, whether they are the products of some sort of foreign military or perhaps super secret projects of our government. Of course, extraterrestrial intelligence can't be ruled out. But as we jump back in, Les Johnson posits another possibility. Let's take a listen. I have to throw another curveball in here, folks, okay? All right. We, we are hopelessly... American and Western and reductionist in the way we're approaching this. I mean, how many of us are trained in science, engineering, military tactics, went to college, have a Western education, we're right in the middle of this. How many, what, and, and so I'm just gonna throw some numbers out there, okay? And then I'm gonna tell you why I'm doing that. There are you know over a billion people who are Muslim, identify as Muslim. There are about a billion or so people who are uh, Christians of various flavors. There are Buddhists, there are Hindus, Almost all of these religions teach that there are spiritual beings, right? There are big fractions of humanity who are not in North America and Europe, maybe Japan, but are in other parts of the world that are seeing these same things. And they are seeing something that, that Patrick, you were talking about earlier in terms of worldview. Their worldview has this in the context of their theology and their religion. And, and I have actually read some threads from folks who are very much uh, in the Christian tradition of biblical literalists, okay? who look at this and say, it's the return of the Nephilim is right there, done, you know, from, from, from biblical times. And, and, you know, we can say, oh, yeah, right, right, right. But we have to remember, we are in a secular culture looking at this through our secular scientific worldview. And there are a lot of people out there, including in our worldview, who have a different worldview where, mm -hmm. like you mentioned, if there was, you know, life out there, it might challenge some of your, your, your core beliefs. And I respect that because it would be a challenge to some of mine. I am a Christian. Do I think this is the Nephilim? No more than I think it's aliens. Do I rule it out? No, I don't rule it out. I don't know what it is. <laughs> so well, let's, um, but let's take this thread. That's where I'm coming from too, Les. If, if this turns out to be real, honestly, I don't know what that means. Let, yeah. Let's go down this thread. So first of all, it could be any number of things. I don't think anybody's making the argument that if real, these are ETs from outer space right they could be could be some natural phenomena we don't know it could be future humans which is why it's so secret it could be nephilim it could be angels it could be demonic it could be any number of things based on worldview <laughs> yeah so with that let's just say this this moniker it could be you know trans-dimensional right we less talked about that i think well that, that I, that's not mine that was the guy that was in the congressional hearing yeah. right right well, yeah so a, i so i mentioned that it's a hearing, good label right? for what you're talking about though yeah yep yep but if we're talking let's just you know he put it into the moniker of non-human intelligence which i suppose you know kind of rules out future humans but let's say it's just something that is not us. We don't know what it is. We don't quite understand it. And this is the government is is try doesn't quite know how to break this to the population, which is why it's such a cluster. Let's just call it. 
Rob, let's say there is something to it. What's the, <laughs> there's this term ontological shock. What could be the implications of this in the next several years, if it is something, as opposed to not a disinformation campaign or a disinformation campaign? One of the greatest, you know, I, I'll give my caveats. I'm not a psychologist and we're getting into, uh, you know, into population psychology and sociology and, and yet, philosophy and, and philosophy. Um, yeah. The, the um, uh, although I think I can handle philosophy a little bit better than psychology sometimes, but the thing about it is, is there's, uh, there is something very well known in the human psyche, which is fear of the other. And fear of the other, frankly, is at the root of most social dynamics anyway. Um, where warfare is, I don't want the other to get what I have, but I want what the other has. I mean, there's your, there, there's your basis uh, for warfare in certain political systems, but we humans are unique in that we have the capability to look at other humans and wonder what that human is thinking. And that paints certain elements in a whole different light when we talk about, well, how are we as a human terrestrial society going to react to the idea that there is an other out there? And Part of us, part of us is going to want to, part of us either as, as a human individual or as a society is going to want to figure out how the other thinks, what the other thinks about. And it's the, it's the popular meme of the guy walking with his girlfriend and another girl work, walks past and he turns to look at her <laughs> and you see the shock on the girlfriend's face and all of that. That's the humans are like that. Humans do That's that. That's the second meme mentioned on this call, by the way. We have the, I, you know. I, I know, but it's great because it illustrates the point that when you, we see that meme, when we see any meme, we interpret that meme. This is what the human brain does. And it interprets from partial information. We don't know what's going on. We don't know if that guy is whistling in appreciation or she was wearing something that looked really, really weird to him. And he's, you know, and, and he doesn't quite know. So we interpret these things. And the ontological shock here is going to be that what we think we know, what we interpret, turns out not to be the case. And then we get into the element of fear of the other and the distrust of things that are not us. And humans are actually fairly uniquely situated. We see a mirror, an image in a mirror, and we know it's us, as opposed to your puppy that sees an, um, an its image in a mirror and thinks it's another dog. You know, these are the these are the types of of things that make humans different and it is going to be a hell of a shock to our worldview when Gort is on the front lawn of of the White House because it will then play into religion and belief very strongly. Yeah, and that's that's where I have 
that's where I struggle with this. Um, you know, because something, I fully admit this gets to, you know, my own worldview based on, you know, my religious beliefs. Um, you know, something I postulated in a couple of my, my Bane books is maybe the reason we haven't found other intelligent life is because we're the first. And that's a pretty you know, profound thought when you think about how puny we are in the scale of the universe. And, you know, and I look at it as well, you know, God put us here and told us, you know, basically go forth and prosper. Um, you know, we've got to figure out the way to do that. You know, if it turns out that that we're not alone and we're just one of many civilizations, I really don't know personally what that means, you know, for, for my beliefs. Um, you know, I, I know some people who um, say it would just roll right off of them, you know, going back, going back to more memes of the one with the, the screaming NPC and the, the regal guy with the beard, you know, you know, what would you Christians do? Well, we'd send out more missionaries. <laughs> <laughs> well, didn't Arthur um, C. Clarke say something to the effect of, I don't know if we're alone or there's others out there, but either one is terrifying. If it, it, it wasn't Clark, it, it, it was one someone of that era, because I remember yeah. reading that, that quote. Yeah. Well, and that's true. I think if we are the elder, if we're the first, we're the first, you know, we have a lot of responsibility. <laughs> um, and, you know, maybe we're the elder race, right? Well, I heard a lecture by Frank Tipler, you know, the guy of the Omega Point and all that. And uh, he, he was he was talking about that very topic. Uh, anyway, that's another another podcast topic. But um, <laughs> I think. I mean, I don't think there's any any denying if yeah, if assuming this stuff is is real and it's from somewhere else and operated by people who aren't human, it's I don't know. I I, I can I can see it um, upending a lot of a lot of belief systems and, and causing a lot of people you know personal uh, you know personal crises of faith. So do you think this is part of the campaign to ease us into it? I mean, that was something I think Rob mentioned a few minutes ago that, that you know, we're, we're getting, we're being conditioned or somebody. If, it, if it's yeah. real, I certainly think it is. If, if it's real. Uh, honestly, I, I, I'm just going to lay all my cards out personally. Uh, this doesn't affect, for, for you Bane fans out there, this doesn't really affect, you know, the stories I tell, but from a purely pers personal point of view, I hope it's not because mentally I just don't want to go there. But, you know, I like to try to live in the real world. So I've got to be, I've got to consider everything and, and be mentally prepared for it. You know, I'm not going to just go whistling past the graveyard. Um, you know, I, I, I never, I was never one to believe that way. And, you know, I, you know, I, I know people who, anything that happens that's outside of the box they want the world to be in, they'll just say, oh, that's just demons. No, yeah, you're right. They do. Yeah, I don't, yep, I don't, yep, you're right. I've never functioned that way. Um, you know, and, and again, I'm not going to just wave my hand and pretend that things aren't what they are. But well, this is a great this is a great question. I think we should kind of go. I mean, if, unless people don't feel comfortable with it, I think we should just go around the horn and like, do you think this some aspect of it is real? Uh, you know, let's just put it that way. I'll start with. Um, we already had Patrick. Rob, 
Well, the problem that I see is as a neuroscientist, I feel that if we're dealing with sentient aliens, you know, another life form, communication bar is so high because we, we live right next door to dolphins, great apes. Mm -hmm. And how long has it taken us to get the rudiments of what their internal language is? And an alien's going to be alien, and their thought processes are not going to be our. And there's not going to be a Rosetta Stone there or a universal translator to translate. And we as science fiction authors have this conceit that prime numbers and the periodic table are going to be the basis of our um, ability to communicate with an alien race. And I don't see it. So the thing about it is, is I, if this is, you know, if we're being conditioned to aliens, alien contact, something like that, I don't see Earth being in charge at all because I don't think we have the knowledge level to be doing the communicating. So if there is something, then, you know, if, the, if this is, you know, an alien intelligence that we're being conditioned to and that it's out there and that sooner or later is going to be revealed, they're the ones calling the shots. Yeah. And well, that's frightening. Just to throw out a data point. So Congresswoman Mays, asked uh, Grush a question about, did we, US government, have agreements with these quote unquote non-human intelligences? And his answer, and, and then her second follow-up question was when? Now, just so that the audience knows, there were a series of secret hearings that led to this these hearings where much more information was relayed. So this is done for the benefit of the people. So the Congress people, if you noticed for the first time in my lifetime, Congress people were asking intelligent questions. It wasn't an accident. So I think, so anyway, Grush's response was to the first question was, we'll have to handle that in a skiff, you know, i.e. sensitive compartmented information facility for those who don't know that topic. So anyway, I'm not not arguing one way or another. I'll tell you what my where I stand after everybody goes. But there is that context that I think is important. He didn't answer the question, but he kind of did answer the question. Given that All later right. he, when he was asked questions, he said specifically that he did not have the answer to that, that he didn't know. And for that one, he did not say he didn't know. Right. Yeah. Right. So, Joelle, what, what's your what's your take on this? Uh, if if there are non-human intelligences, I don't feel like that changes my worldview significantly. Um, my my parents for their entire careers were Lutheran missionaries. Um, I'm not convinced we'll be able to talk to non-human intelligences or that they'll necessarily be interested in talking to us. Uh, if what they are doing is not poking us, assuming that these are aliens and that they're all aliens and that some of it isn't fake, um, it kind of feels oh, some like some of it's most assuredly <laughs> fake. I think I think everybody agrees with that, <laughs> right? Yeah, 
there's but a lot of noise if, in the signal. If the Fed's involved, some of it's fake. If the cubes with the sphere is aliens and the TikTok, TikTok rather, is aliens, imagining that that was an attempt to, all right, you were there and you went here, so I will beat you here and now I'm going to go back there. That's that's kind of a copying kind of thing that you might do if you were trying to establish an initial language. Um, but, but you wouldn't do it so quickly and then say, oh, I give up. These stupid, <laughs> stupid apes, I'm out of here. <laughs> well, well, the stupid apes landed. We, we pulled away. So I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I want more information. I, I wish I could be invited into the, the secret hearings. I wish I still had a clearance and that was still active and somebody thought I had need to know. <laughs> I, I think as a science fiction author, I'd be among the last that they would feel has need to know, but I, I wish I had need to know. Less. So, so the question you're asking is, what if they're real? Is that what you're um, asking? What do you like? What do you think is the most probable explanation for what? Wow, most probable. Oh man, yeah. uh. that, that that way you don't have to. You know, that way you don't have to say like this is what. I'll, I'll really put it in order. I, I think most most probable is pro for me is probably a, a mixture of disinformation combined with blue on blue that we're seeing things that are our own and we have a disinformation campaign so people don't believe we have the capability until we get it really developed okay sort of the sr-71 where people were reporting that as something that was an unidentified flying object in the past and then 25 years later look back and say oh it was an sr-71 flying at altitudes that were impossible at speeds that were impossible right and had thermal characteristics that were impossible that's how it got to those speeds so i think that is the most likely explanation but quite frankly I don't believe that we can keep a secret like that as long as this looks like it may have been kept a secret. So my most likely explanation has lots of holes in it. Okay. Yeah, I don't. I don't think. I don't. I mean, I don't think we've. I don't. You know, I, I think there's been leaks since. You know, again, I don't want to get into Roswell and lots of stuff, but I think there's been leaks since at least, you know, back that far. Mm -hmm. um, whether or not it's disinformation or you know, there's all sorts of noise, but. Yeah, there's a chance people are seeing something these sensors are yeah. picking up something and people are seeing something that is outside our experience and our ability to, to readily explain there is no doubt that that's happening now there is doubt that we have biologicals because that's hearsay that's somebody's word mm -hmm. of mouth right that's not videos multi-sensor data whatever right some of this stuff is out there and it's real and we don't understand it and we darn well better understand it because the the implications of not understanding it are terrifying right so we've really got to work to understand it the hearsay that we heard in those hearings you know we got biologicals we're reverse engineering look at this picture this is a picture of something we didn't build and we're just trying to figure out how to take it apart et cetera et cetera et cetera okay get get the real data like we've got real data that was released on some of these sightings the from the aircraft carrier from the tic tac and again, go look up Mosul Orb. I'm telling you, it'll freak you out. Um, if you haven't seen that full video, uh, you got to go look at that. But the the these the skeptics are calling that a uh, helium balloon or something like that. No, <laughs> okay. I'm just putting that out there. I'm just playing devil's advocate. Balloon. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. Okay, <laughs> or like a balloon or something. Maybe, some maybe. Thing. All right, I, I I'm I'm skeptical of those skeptics, but 
it, it's just, uh, you know, there's something being seen and we need to understand what it is. And, and I think we need to have our worldviews open wide enough to follow the data wherever it leads, even if it's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Okay, so here's, here's where I come out on it. And I'm going to start with an incident that happened in 1967. Are you all familiar with the Malmstrom incident in uh, Montana, nuclear, the ICBMs? Maybe. Is that where they shut down uh, an ICBM? Yeah, there, there's been a few occasions, but there's there's an incident where the Russians turned them on. There's been an incident where where they turned where the Russians uh, ICBMs were turned on, and there's been an incident. Uh, I think three separate occasions uh, in 1967. One of them may have been in 1968, but I I interviewed a gentleman. His name's Robert Salas. He was a captain. He was a missile launch. He was a, he was a launch officer, Air Force Academy graduate, and he was responsible for maintaining and launching uh, ten ICBMs, Minuteman One ICBMs. In 1967, he received a frantic call. He was actually underground. These missiles are. Uh, you know, each missile is independently launched, right? They're not tied to each other. They're independent systems. There's cabling about 60 feet underground under the surface. It's, you know, triple red hardened, et cetera, so that you can't get to it. And one of these security personnel saw kind of like a red light uh, or an object that was pulsing a red light in the, in the air. And then almost simultaneously, all his missile systems went down. When they sent the, the data to Boeing to try to replicate how one would do this, the only way that they were able to do it with, with, a, with a bench test, they would, uh, is the logic coupler, which I believe is kind of similar to like a MUX, right, where it just integrates all the um, information about the inertial guidance system, so the missile warhead hits the target. The missiles weren't damaged other than that uh, particular sensor was messed with simultaneously and of everything went down. So I think whatever it is, and I'm not pretending to have the information to understand what this phenomenon is, and that's the way I would describe it, I think is, is very real. I think it's been with us for a very long time. What scares me more is why now? Why did the government fight so hard to keep these sorts of things secret for so long. And then suddenly it's almost like somebody's light, you know, lit a fire under their proverbial fourth points of contact, if you've ever been to airborne school with that, with that your rear end. So that's what scares me. Why now? Why this sudden urge to disclose? Um, and I think it also plays right into your thesis less, uh, or a potential thesis, not your thesis, but that you know, it could be an extreme driver for some misinformation uh, campaign, but I don't know. It, it feels to me like something's somebody is controlling the timeline that, and I don't mean like in a science fiction way, but this disclosure timeline that feels like it's not in in our control. It feels it like feels manipulated. It yes. feels planned. It, it, it's it's you can't put your finger yeah. on it, but you look at it. And the timing and what's been coming out, it looks orchestrated, not the sightings, but the way it's being released, talked about, and rolled out. It just, yeah. it just has that feel to it. You, you got to think uh, if these kind of things had been, if people had tried to bring these kind of things out in the open, you know, five or 10 years ago, 
you know, they would have been in a crap ton of trouble. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, now they're being allowed to just go out and, you know, go out there and start telling stories. Um, you know, I think you're right. It, it, it's kind of like what I was talking about earlier when everybody's marching in a certain direction, you know, I immediately think, okay, they're trying to establish a narrative. And, well, I don't think it's everybody though. I think it yeah. feels to me like there's some sort of a factional battle Mm-hmm. going on behind the scenes between different kind of a pro-disclosure group. I mean, I'll give you an example. So the Arrow organization under Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick, his mandate was to increase disclosure, reduce the stigma for reporting these sorts of incidents. Uh, two of the things he was supposed to accomplish is set up a Twitter account and have a website to enable reporters. Uh, and by reporters, I mean people who experience these things and and need to report to build that sort of thing up. It's still not done. He's hired a PR organization who, I think it's, I can't remember the name of it, but they're really good at like shutting things down, um, you know, keeping things quiet. If you look at Twitter, his last tweet was over a year ago. So Mm -hmm. it, it just feel, it feels a little bit off to me but again i i don't have enough data or evidence to go one way or the other other than i think this phenomena is real it's been here for a while but i have it could be any number of different things but what really scares me is this sudden race to disclose why let's like let's go around the horn and try to answer that question and then and then end on that well i don't want to end on that i want to i want to end on a note where everybody talks about their books very quickly but uh before we get to that but rob since you're already laughing and, and highlighted um why do you think the sudden like where's the fire what's what's going on i think it goes back to a lot of human behavior which is um there, there's a phrase i don't want to use here um because it's charged, but I think that when we see somebody admitting something, there is a uh, strong urge that is part confirmation and part need to belong that says, okay, I'm going to tell my story as well. And it is a very, very natural uh, element of humanity, and it is part of the you know, we are empathetic beings. We consider, most of us consider what other people are thinking and feeling. At the very least, we think about it ourselves. And when we see other uh, disclosures, they will tend to, um, that'll cascade. It'll prompt more and it'll prompt more. So on the one hand, I could say that I don't think they're, I don't think it's unnatural that we're seeing more and more and more and for me the telling point is that the stories are so scattered uh they're disjointed they're not in lockstep on the other hand i can very very well see a disinformation campaign you know this is disinformation because we're trying to to pull your attention away now that attention could be pulled away from hey, the aliens are already here and you're not going to like what they have to say to this is our tech and we just want to make the enemy 
distrust it enough that we'll surprise them when we deploy it. Um, I, I tend to the disinformation side. But again, I, I, I also acknowledge that there is the very easy explanation that when one dog barks, the rest of the neighborhood starts to bark as well. Joel? Well, in general, I think things are going to be okay. Um, Good. <laughs> and I really don't know what's going on. <laughs> All right, Patrick, why, why the fire? Why the fire? Why the urgency? You know, for the longest time, um, at least the last couple of years, as these stories started to bubble up, that's when I first heard the David Fravor story. Um, you know the 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 Bob Lazar interviews, all that. Although, although I will say, when he kept talking about, you know, I worked at S four at Groom Lake. I'm like, what? You were supply? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, for yeah. those in the Marine Corps and the Army, they'll get. Yeah, well, actually, you'll you should get you you'll get that too, Joel. Yeah. Um. um <laughs> so no, I, I I tended to think it was a disinformation campaign that that maybe we had some that we had had some technological breakthroughs. And, and this was just a means of, of obfuscating, you know, how far along we really were to keep, keep the other guys um, off balance. Uh, but I do have to say some of the things that I heard in those hearings last week were really disturbing, assuming that there's, there's truth to them. That could, it could also be. An One thing that really bothered me was, and I'm reading a little bit into it, mm -hmm. that airlines were making pilots or were, were filing restraining orders against pilots for reporting what they were seeing in the skies. That's really disturbing to me. Yeah, yeah, And they're shutting them up. That's messed up. I can see airlines doing that because it's all about preserving the corporate reputation. Delta doesn't want people thinking that they've got nut jobs up in the front seat. I mean, yeah. some of, I, you know, I've worked with a lot of pilots over the years and I've heard some stories from a few. So um, uh, I, I truly don't know what to make of this, but like I said last week, some of the stories I, I heard were kind of disturbing. And uh, I don't want to say it's either all BS or it's all true. Um, you know, there, there are probably elements of both. Um, I'm taking a wait and see attitude right now. Wish it could be more concrete, but you know, like Joel, I don't have a TS clearance and need to know anymore. Les. Yeah, hey, Sean, I'm going to take this away from what the data we have, and I'm going to go straight to the testimony we heard, right? Because that's that's really where Patrick focused in on, and I think rightfully so. Because if you just listen to the testimony we heard, it sure sounds to me like a different kind of disinformation campaign. I think it could very well be a part of the postmodern philosophy movement we're in now to discredit people in authority, discredit experts, dis, mm -hmm. just sow distrust and disbelief in what public officials say. And so if, if I were a creator of chaos, again, if I were somebody behind the scenes trying to do something to 
cause radical change in the world, one of the first things I'd want to do is destroy the credibility of the people in leadership. And what better way to do that than have congressmen hearing talk, people talking about little green men sliced into pieces in a freezer, right? Uh, and and so you know it it just it that part of it, the testimony part of it, and the the the, the show that that was has all the smell of we're trying to destroy credibility of people to me. So I'm, I'm very cynical politically about the postmodern era that we're in, and that's a concern. Yeah, I would have thought they would have accomplished that in 2020. But with, I, uh, I think it's all, it's, it's all just out stuff, there. Yeah. I, it, there. There's just, I mean, that's a whole topic, yeah, again, for another podcast. Yeah. The distrust yeah, and, and people yeah. of respected positions and education and authority and subject matter experts. Nobody trusts anybody. Yeah. And, and this is a great way to just to sow distrust in our elected officials as well as you know people who are supposedly in the know. All like right. How much will the people believe? Anyway, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I I definitely see there's a there's a fire. I think there's I just think there's something people know that's coming or part of this timeline that the powers that be are racing to get on top of it in order to make it look like they're really in charge hmm. and i think it just looks i think it's making i mean you see the there was a statement by dr kirkpatrick a few days ago where he you know talked about feeling upset and left out and and it's just like where's the website where's the <laughs> so yeah I, again i think there's two factions battling out there is some sort of timetable. I have no idea where it all leads, but it feels like they're they've kind of lost the narrative and they're trying to regain it. So, all right, with that, let's talk about some. I mean, very quickly because we've been on for a while. So, uh, Les, let's start with you. What uh, what books should people be buying? Oh wow! Uh, if you're talking about what books of mine they ought to be buying, I'll tell you right now. Absolutely. What books should they be buying from you, Les? Yeah, yeah, I've got two. Uh, one, unfortunately, one's not a Bain book. It's the one over this shoulder over here, Traveler's Guide to the Stars. If you're interested in what it's really going to take to go to the stars, and you're not an expert, not a scientist, that book's written for you. It's from Princeton Press, and it's uh, it's done fairly well. I'm I'm really excited about it. It's the first book I've had that's going to be translated into six other languages. So. I'm thrilled. I'll be soon getting multi-language editions of the book. Now, from Bain, uh, I don't have a big placard for it, but uh, uh, I know uh, Rob uh, contributed, and and uh, we've got a couple of things. One is uh, the anthologies that we do that follow on the Interstellar Workshops. Uh, the Ross 248 Project is a big one. Uh, it's an anthology that just came out from Bain. Uh, you know, people talk about traveling to other worlds, which track tackles. Well, what do we do when we get there? <laughs> um, and an excellent, and excellent anthology, by the way. Oh, well, Definitely thank you. Um, a lot of fun putting that together. Some great stories from very many different writers. And it's it's out in trade paperback from Bain as of, gosh, not, not more than two months ago. So I, I, I think folks ought to check that out. Patrick. Well, um, I didn't set my placards up behind me like I usually do. Um, you showed us two books before we started recording, man. Just show them. <laughs> okay, well, make them go. Camera. <laughs> <laughs> Shameless plug time. Is that an alien behind you? Sorry, go ahead. Extreme close up. <laughs> nice. Escape Orbit came out in April. And it's the second in the series. Um, the near future hard science fiction does get into some exploration or of, of who we are, where we're going. How did we get here? Are we alone? If we're the first, or excuse me, if, we're, if we are alone, you know, then, uh, you know, we were the first and what kind of 
special responsibilities that put on us. Um, I was also in, in Les's Ross 248 project anthology. And, you know, I made a couple of comments earlier, uh, just very early this morning, finished my next manuscript for Bain called Interstellar Medic, The Long Run. And this gets, this will be out in March. And um, it is a real departure for me because, uh, you know, I've, I've always written, you know, I like the near future hard sci-fi slash techno thriller type stuff. Uh, never written about space aliens. This one I just finished last night is all about space aliens. Awesome. And um, about a, a human paramedic that gets caught up in that world that she thought was just supermarket tabloid stories. And I have a lot of fun with a lot of well-worn uh, sci-fi tropes and UFO abduction stories. You know, there's the gray aliens that the cure for everything is a different kind of anal probe. And, you know... <laughs> That doesn't uh, sound like a pleasant world. No, but that's <laughs> yeah. out there. No, but those scenes I, I I think are hilarious because you know, you know, she's reacting to it like, what the hell is it with you guys anyway? And uh, you know, I I had a lot of fun with that one, and again, that will be out in March. All right, Joel. All right, um, I have the Dabare Snake Launcher, um, which is available now. And uh, mass market paperback will be coming out in uh, November, and um, it's a near-term science fiction. And the, the the idea is that everything has been okay enough that we've got a near-term world where Earth is similar to now, but everything's a little bit better, such that we can have the story that I wanted to tell about getting humanity off the planet. And where in Africa does that take place? I'm asking because um, the, there's the space elevator ground station is on Mount Kilimanjaro. And because okay. we've already got a lot of junk in orbit around Earth now, and you need to clear it out to have a space elevator that wasn't a massive problem, uh, there's a second uh spaceport that gets built in West Africa and Cameroon, where I happen to have grown up. Yeah, West Africa is uh having some problems in the past week you've seen in central I have, and, or, yeah and there were i i thought a lot about taking current problems and 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 making them worse and making them still present and i thought no no i get to write something that's a little bit utopian and we can have those things fixed by then yeah no that's good that's that's yeah. that's always a great bane book so definitely there, check it out other conflict yeah robert uh so or i'm sorry um, i never called you dr ha um, hampson i should oh, please don't that. same thing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> please don't <laughs> the um um so i i also contributed to ross 248 project uh uh in uh contributed to interstellar travel uh purpose and motivation uh which is which is in fact a non-fiction serious you know, how are we, what are we going to do to get there? Why are we going to go to uh, other planets, other stars? Um, and, uh, and of course, uh, the moon in the desert and Joel and I have been in been friendly competition uh, with, uh, with our two books that came out very close to each other. And the, um, uh, the moon in the desert is my retelling of the $6 million man. Um, uh, my character, Glenn Shepard, is a flight surgeon. Uh, 
he wants to go to Mars and he doesn't get there because he is a doctor. He is a sort of person that will run toward danger. And when he does so, he gets so badly injured, he's going to have to have a bionic rebuild. And the problem is that the powers that be says, oh, you're medically discharged. You can't do any of this stuff anymore. And he says, I got rebuilt specifically so I could do all this stuff. And then he has to prove it. And there is a circumstance where he is quite literally the only man for the job, the only bionic man for the job. And that's uh, uh, The Moon in the Desert. It's currently in trade paperback and mass market paperback will be sometime after the first of the year. All right. Well, definitely check all of these books. Bye, bye, bye. And uh, <laughs> thank you everyone for indulging the audience on a fascinating topic and it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next several months see if this goes away it turns out to be a massive disinformation campaign or heaven forbid it turns out to be real only time will tell but you're not saying it's aliens we're not saying it's aliens. i'm not Everybody. saying it's aliens, it's aliens. Can, can, we aliens. One, can we hit we visit that meme once more before we close did anybody see that the guy in that meme released another meme last week he's no no oh. I'm not saying it's I told with you so. Giorgio Sukulis, is that so. his name? Something like that? <laughs> I'm yeah. not saying I told you so, but I told you so. I, I like that. So. Yeah. Yep. Great. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, and have a great night. All right. It was a, a pleasure. Fun. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And now we bring you our audiobook serialization of Tinker by Wynn Spencer. Inventor girl genius Tinker lives in a near-future Pittsburgh, which now exists mostly in the land of the elves. She runs her salvage business, pays her taxes, and tries to keep the local ambient level of magic down with gadgets of her own design. When a pack of wargs chase an elven noble into her scrapyard, life as she knows it takes a serious detour. Tinker finds herself taking on the elven court, the NSA, the Elven Interdimensional Agency, technology smugglers, and a college-minded xenobiologist as she tries to stay focused on what's really important, her first date. Armed with an intelligence the size of a planet, steel-toed boots, and a junkyard dog attitude, Tinker is ready to kick butt to get her first kiss. It quickly became apparent that there were two types of armed elves present. Hospice security appeared to be laid in cast, in camouflage green and browns, done with elfin flair for fashion. They carried bows and spell arrows, and interceded between the humans of the EIA and Windwolf's personal security, which was all higher-born Sakasha cast, armed to the teeth and thoroughly peeved. Even the hospice healers seemed intimidated by the Sakasha, taking care to make no threatening moves as Windwolf was shifted off the work table, onto a stretcher, and then handed out the trailer. The cousins were kept back, out of the way, as the healers and the Sakasha carried the injured elf into the hospice. By then, news of the cousins' arrival with Windwolf must have reached the enclaves that lined Elfholm's side of the rim. Elves drifted out of the darkness to gather in the parking lot. They were largely ignored by everyone, but seemed satisfied with swapping information among themselves. Only one rated attention from the guards. She drifted out of the woods like a will-o'-the-wisp. 
a gleaming beauty who made Tinker extremely aware of how short, dirty, and scruffy she herself really was in comparison. Obviously one of the high caste, the female crossed the parking lot and stopped one of the hospice guards with a touch of her luminous hand. The two made an effective roadblock, preventing the cousins and their joint elf-slash-human guard from entering the hospice. Wolf who rules has been found? the female asked in high elvish. The guard bowed low and answered in a rapid flow of high tongue that Tinker couldn't follow. Tinker had always found the more formal language to be too tedious and pretentious to become fluent in it. She did catch, however, the female's name. Setato Fahali Bateli. Roughly, it meant sparrow lifted by wind, though these setato could indicate soaring rather than lifted. While the female did not seem the type to take a human nickname, she would probably be called Sparrow. As if collateral damage from Sparrow's beauty were not enough, the guard indicated the cousins, and Sparrow turned her stunning regard their way. From ankle-length hair, so pale blonde it was nearly silver, with ribbons and flowers worked through it, to her tall, lithe body, encased in softly gleaming fairy silk of pale green, she was perfection taking humanoid form. These two wood sprites. A soft musical laugh as eyes of deep emerald studied the cousins. The guard clicked his tongue, the elfin way of shrugging, and added something about Windwolf putting them under his protection. Yes. Of course, Sparrow clicked her tongue against straight, pearly teeth and drifted away. Minutes later, the cousins were alone, under joint human-slash-elf guard in a waiting room, holding mugs of hot chai. Oilcan was quietly shaking off the adrenaline, which left Tinker plenty of time to think. They had done it, kept Windwolf alive all of shutdown day, and delivered him to safety. With all of Pittsburgh... Why, though, had he ended up in her scrapyard? Just stupid luck? Or had the life debt between them somehow guided him to her? And now what? Did he disappear out of her life again, until the next monster and the next life-or-death fight? She touched her breast pocket to feel the spell within. If she got a moment alone with Windwolf, it might be the last time she could ever cast the spell. Even if she was sure the spell wouldn't harm him, did she want to sever the link? She scoffed at herself. What did she know of him except that he was arrogant? Strong, brave, altruistic, honorable, beautiful. That he was capable of wit and patience even while enduring great pain, facing probable death. And he was possibly a great lover. The door swung open, and a man came in as if he ruled the place. He could nearly pass as an elf. He was tall, sleek, had blonde hair drawn back into a braid, and was stylishly dressed from painted silk duster to tall, polished boots. He checked himself at the sight of the cousins huddled on the couch. Finally, the man let out his breath loudly and glanced at his PDA. Which one of you is oil can, and which is Tinker? I'm Tinker, she answered. He's oil can. He crossed the room to tower over them. Brother and sister? We're cousins. Tinker said. I'm Maynard. He didn't need to say more. Everyone knew director Derek Maynard, head of EIA. In Pittsburgh, it was just short of saying, I'm God. Oil Can moaned softly and sank deeper into the couch. 
You are in luck that elves believe that the ends justify the means, as long as it's done with honor. We've been told that the court would be most displeased with us if we press charges. He said it almost like the royal we. So the question is, what all do we need to pardon you of? Are you citizens, or do we have to draw you up papers? Is that truck yours, or did you steal it? We're citizens, Oilcan said, but we need our papers back. Your men never gave them back. We didn't do anything wrong until your men attacked us, Tinker said. Maynard looked at her, eyes narrowing. Was this before or after you destroyed the checkpoint? We were waiting for startup about a mile from the checkpoint when they forced their way into the trailer, Tinker said. They were going to kill Windwolf. I had Windwolf's gun, so I pulled it on them. I made them get out. Then we rammed the gate. Maynard studied her, all expression going from his face until he was unreadable. What made you think they would kill Windwolf? The one who got into the trailer called Windwolf Sitting Duck, or something like that. Easy prey. Oilcan mimicked their thick, rough voices. He said, he is here, easy prey. Then the other said, do them all quietly. They were going to kill all of us. Yeah, no witnesses, Tinker said. What makes you think they were EIA men? They had on the border guard uniforms and asked to see our papers. It is important for you to understand this. Maynard dropped to one knee so he was level with them. The EIA did not try to kill Lord Windwolf. They were too big to be wearing stolen uniforms, Tinker said. They were taller than you, with lots more muscle. Whether they were truly EIA or not is yet to be seen. I doubt very much that they were my men. If they were, they were not acting under my orders. It is very important that no rumors to the contrary start. Me sanctioning a murder of Lord Windwolf would mean war. Perhaps war isn't a strong enough word. It would be genocide. The elves would rid Elfholm of humans. Had he ordered it? Tinker considered what she knew of the man. Everyone had something different to say about Maynard, some of it insulting. No one called him stupid, though, and sending men in uniform would be the height of stupidity. Okay, Tinker said. You had nothing to do with it. So I guess this means we won't get our papers back. I will see you are issued replacements, Maynard said. We had reports that Windwolf and his guard had been attacked by wargs just before shutdown. His guard had been killed and he disappeared. We had no idea if he was in the city or still on Elfholm. We were hoping he made Elfholm. Apparently he didn't. How did he end up with you? The wargs chased him into our scrapyard at midnight last night. I was there alone. They were temporary constructs, so I was able to disrupt them with our electromagnet. They reverted to dogs, and Winwolf shot them. And you've been sitting on him the last 24 hours? Tinker explained about Johnny refusing to treat Windwolf and about taking the elf noble to the observatory. Maynard cursed softly. None of them thought to call the EIA? No, Tinker admitted. What could you have done? The hospitals don't treat the elves because the elves are worried we'll take blood samples in order to study their genetics and use it to tailor spells and germ warfare. You took a member of the royal family to a conclave of scientists while he was helpless. 
Do you have any idea what this might mean to our peace treaty? We told him the choices. He agreed to it, Tinker said. Besides, we gave him our word of honor. No one took samples. You know that for certain? You were with him every second? When I wasn't with him, Oil Canner Lane was with him. We didn't leave him alone. Who was Lane? Dr. Lane Skansky. She's a xenobiologist. She did the first aid on Windwolf. He asked her first if she understood the treaty and would swear to abide by it. Oil Can nodded. Tinker vouched that Lane could be trusted, and Windwolf said that was good enough for him. Maynard looked at her in surprise. He trusted you to vouch for someone? Tinker shrugged. I suppose. I saved his life. He saved mine. He defended my honor. I helped stitch him together. I got into bed with him. It was one hell of a 24 hours, okay? I see. Maynard continued looking at her, but she couldn't read his expression. Are we all free and clear with the EIA? Tinker asked. Maynard sighed. We need you to describe the men who attacked you the best you can. We'll get someone in with a composite sketch program. I know you've been through a lot, but we need to nail these men. He gave them no chance to say no. Standing, Maynard motioned to one of the human guards to make his wishes reality. If Windwolf is out of danger, can I see him to say goodbye? Tinker asked. I'll let his staff know, Maynard said. They'll decide. With that, he swept out of the room, apparently to start the search for the mysterious assassins. The cousins were left, once again, under the joint guard. A police officer with a data pad showed up. They worked through sketches for the three big men. Oil can prove to have a better memory for their faces, despite the fact that Tinker had interacted with them longer. The cousins were provided with forms to fill out and turn in later to replace their lost citizen papers. As they finished up, an elf came and announced something in fast high elvish. Windwolf is sleeping, Oil Can translated for Tinker. He had had the patience to learn high tongue where Tinker had not. He left word that our desires be met. Can I see him? Tinker struggled through the request in high elvish, earning a surprised look from Oil Can over the top of his chai. Batya? the elf asked. Now? Tinker stood and did a formal bow. Sha, om geyeto. The elf returned her bow and led her to a door flanked by two stunningly beautiful elves, elegantly carrying swords and automatic rifles. She ducked between them, feeling as scruffy as a junkyard dog. They had worked serious healing magic on Windwolf, all his wounds were mere puckered scars. While he slept deeply, his breathing was regular and easy. All in all, he looked better than she did. She took out the circuit paper, unfolded it, and looked at the glyph. Now or never. Could she really lean over his battered body and place the glyph on his forehead? Cast the spell and hope for the best? Play magical Russian roulette with his life? She flashed suddenly to the weight and shape of his pistol in her hands and shuddered at the thought of pressing that steel barrel to Windwolf's temple. Never. She dropped the paper into a wastebasket next to the bed. Bad as her luck was, she'd rather trust that Windwolf would outlive her by centuries than risk killing him by accident. Standing on tiptoe, she kissed Windwolf goodbye, lightly on his bruised, perfect lips. 
Perhaps in another five years, some monster would chase him into her life again. Strangely enough, she would miss him this time. That was another installment in Wynn Spencer's Tinker, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Les Johnson, Patrick Charles, Joel Presby, and Robert E. Hampson for sitting down with us these last two weeks, and good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.